0: If you've got little ones that are going to be in children's worship, you can dismiss them. You don't have to, but if you have some that are kind of at that age where they're not quite ready for this on a weekly basis, then uh, they have some time together in the treehouse. I know we've got some space challenges and uh, this is our first official Sunday being in one service. These last couple of Sundays we've had one service just over the holidays, but uh, as you're looking for a place to sit and you're realizing that it's going to be um, probably tight quarters for a while, uh, I'd rather have this than us split up and dining in shifts. And uh, the elders agree in that, agree with that. We don't know what the solution is. If you're wondering like, hey man, do you have a solution? No, I really don't. don't you know, build a bigger building, plant a church, both, plant another church. I don't know. We just know the solution isn't two services. That's the only thing that we we know for sure, at least at the moment. So um, we're going to do some things, arrangements in here to where we can open up some more seating. But um, I just don't think, you know, as we wrestle with this, we just started thinking, I I just don't think, I think we'd sit on the floor if we needed to, just to be together and dine together. So um, time will tell if that's true, time will tell what's in store. So. but for now I, I'll enjoy hope you' all are enjoying being together. I'll start with prayer this morning. <clears throat> Lord, in these next few minutes, we just want to so enjoy you corporately. In one service as one people, we want to present as one man, and we want to hear the reading of the word, and we want to be attentive and tuned in, sensitive and engaging. Lord, I pray for a divine work of grace in our hearts where you will fetter us to the truth. Uh, pray that you will um, captivate us with your work and your story over the ages. Lord, we pray that the result will be families that give glory to you in the way that we live and love and talk and eat and engage and uh, work and all the things that we do as families. Lord, we just we want you to be glorified in these next few minutes as we offer our lives up. Also, these next few minutes, Lord, we want to pray for Highland Terrace uh, Baptist Church, Lord. I want to pray for uh, Robert Webb and his family. Lord, I pray that Robert is captivated with the gospel and captivated with our, our Christ and that as he's prepared to preach this week, that he has been undone, wrecked, rebuilt uh, in the image and filled up with the Holy Spirit to where he is preaching out of an overflow of a true enjoyment uh, of the gospel. Lord, I pray for his family. I pray that his family has dibs. Lord, I pray that he will not sacrifice his family on the altar of ministry, but that they will be his primary ministry and that Highland Terrace will be ministered to out of its overflow. Lord, we thank you for the sweet shared ministry that we have with Highland Terrace Baptist Church. And we just pray for a spirit of agreement, a spirit of partnership, and guard us and guard Highland Terrace from ever having a spirit of competition. Lord, we want to worship you, we want to wonder about the wonderful gospel together out loud in this community, and we pray that you'll work that in us. We turn these next, next few minutes over to you, in Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> these next few weeks, we're going to be stepping away from the book of John. John has been, uh, we started, I started preaching from John about four years ago, and um we're going to be moving into John chapter 13 here in the next month or two at some point. But John has been an escort. It's not our master. So if you're wondering, hey, can can we do this? Can we get away with this? He's, he's servant in some ways as an escort, and he's not our master. So these next few weeks, we're actually going to be stepping away from the book of John and engaging family. I want to share with you kind of the journey of how we got here to where we're about to engage the next next few weeks, I'm not going to give you a lot of specifics there, because to be very honest with you, I don't really know specifically where we're going the next few weeks. I have just kind of snippets. He's kind of given me a a step at a time. I'm walking by lamplight, not spotlight right now in the preaching these next few weeks. But one thing we can do, something we're going to do this morning, is we're going to look back on where we've been in the last year. But before we talk about family, I want to address some obstacles to understanding family rightly. First of all, the first obstacle that I'm very aware of this morning is a fear of hurting those with broken families. It's amazing to me the amount of my ministry, the amount of my prayer life, the amount of my uh, burden that's directed at broken families. I think if you gather any people, and even including the people of God at any point, you're going to have a room full of people that are likely hurting from family issues. And it may be from something historical or it may be from something present or it may be from something that's imminent that you're staring down the barrels of as family may be uh, disintegrating right before your eyes. And I realize that there's so much time spent encouraging the broken that we may not hold up the high standard of the whole. So in these next few weeks, I don't want to discourage those that are dealing with the aftermath of broken families. What I want to do in these next few weeks is I hope that we can impact tomorrow's family. And that may even be the presently broken one. I want to impact tomorrow's family, and I'm begging that people that are involved or connected to broken families will find good medicine in holding up the whole in these next few weeks. The thing that I want people to appreciate who are part of broken families is that you are not damaged goods, is that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to redeem your family, to redeem even your marriage, and to redeem your life. So that's where the the tone of that initial fear I want to be is that God's grace is sufficient. But we're going to lift up the standard of the whole. these next few weeks. I bet you're going to find good medicine there, even if you're part of a broken family. Another obstacle to proper understanding, a family really has two parts, and they're what I'm calling off-center Christian paradigms. A paradigm is a way of thinking. You may be familiar with the term. A paradigm is kind of the box that we think in. And we have various paradigms. But there are Christian paradigms, two of them that I want to address, that have to do, that really are obstacles to understanding a proper view of family. And the first one has to do with too high a view of family. Most Christians, I think, appreciate a view of family and a view of church. But what happens if you have too high a view of family? Is that possible for well-meaning, believing people to have too high a view of family? A family. What happens in that case when family is elevated above church is that family becomes idolized even by well-meaning people. What happens is you end up being accountable to no one as a little island. There are no authorities in your life, so your family exists on its own. And the extreme cases of this involve really a family who rejects what they often term as organized religion. I'm not much on organized religion. My response is, well, we're not that organized. You need to to get to no cross point. That's okay. It's really just an excuse, though, to keep the church at arm's length, to stiff arm it. Somewhere along that continuum, where you may be potentially placing family above church, is the family that will not make an accountability commitment to the local body. Afraid of man-made things, and they put membership in the place of a man-made instrument. How dare I be committed to a local body through something called membership? And probably the water has been poisoned through people over the years having membership drives. Let's see how many people we can get on our rolls. Instead of having quality commitments by God and Christ-adoring people, to each other, to be accountable to each other, and to be accountable to God-ordained leadership. So when you place family above church, you can find yourself along that continuum where you are accountable to no one. You may worship corporately, physically, with a local body of believers, but if you are not in agreement, in connection with them, if you are not accountable to them through what we call membership, then I'm going to argue you're still accountable to no one. It's too high a view of family. Another off-center Christian paradigm is too low a view of family. Again, you've got two views. You've got church, you've got family. What happens when you have too low a view of family? The view of the church is amplified over family so that your pastor and your elders are viewed as responsible for ministering to each member of your family. What happens the way that materializes is that people view the elders and the pastors and the teachers of their local church as responsible to teach their children in the things of righteousness. What happens is that you look to the church to schedule and program your obedience. What happens is you look to the church to do your missions, and you look to the church to accomplish your evangelism. If family is small and church is big, You've got pastors and elders running around like chickens with their heads cut off, doing the work of ministry, while the family sits in the stands critiquing the work. It's a broken Christian paradigm, and it's an obstacle to a true, healthy understanding of family. So let's get them out there in front and call them obstacles. Call them what they are, and then let's climb in to what family really is. My burden the next few weeks is to raise your view of family because I think what, in our paradigm, what we're most guilty of is that latter view where we have too high a view of church. Really, it's not too high a view of church, it's too low a view of family and too much onus and responsibility on the local body and not enough responsibility by shepherds, the pastors in homes to shepherd and train and teach their families and lead their families. So my burden the next few weeks is to raise your view of family without lowering your view of church. I want you to see them connected and intertwined and interdependent. I want you to see the family as a divine institution alongside the church where you can't separate them. For a proper family is engaged to the local church and the local church is made up of healthy proper families to where they're connected you cannot disassemble them you've got to look at them together and i'm hoping and praying these next few weeks is that shepherds fathers in most cases not in all may have functional shepherds single moms we may have spiritually single moms <laughs> the daddy's at home right now our daddy's at work and he won't darken the door of corporate worship But my prayer and burden is that shepherds, or functional shepherds, or spiritually single shepherds, will swallow hard as we consider the grave and wonderful ministry of leading our families. That's my burden. Now, how did we get here? Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. What I want to do in these next few minutes is Kind of look through a spiritual photo album. On the first, we sat down as a family, and I talked with our kids, wife, or Christy and our kids, about the last year, what happened in 2007, what the Lord did in our lives. Um, We kind of went back and just took the time to consider the events that we participated in, the vacations, the trips, the things that God showed us as a family, the things that we found in the Word. It was really kind of our little version of what we're about to do right now, our little spiritual photo album. What I want to do in these next few minutes is consider corporately our spiritual photo album. 2007 was an important year in the life of this church, for in this year I think we began to have eye contact with shepherds. Where shepherds are beginning to look up from their notes or look up from their nap. <laughs> you know? And we're beginning to have eye contact with each other. And we're beginning to swallow hard. And some of those things that the Lord did in, these, in this last year, I want us to just revisit and enjoy. First of all was the Passover series. Before we climbed into John chapter 12, we felt like we needed to go back and get to know the Passover. What is the Passover? It's really me being a Christian. I began the journey of the faith at the age of six. And it was never really developed in me. What is the Passover? So we as a people went back and we studied what happened. The nation of Israel became just like God promised Abram and then Abraham. They became numerous. And they found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And they were there for 400 years. And people were crying out, Lord, deliver us. There were people that were born and died in slavery and never saw God's deliverance. And they cried out for it and begged for it. And then God, after 400 years of them being in slavery in Egypt, through a series of plagues, liberated and delivered his people. And those plagues were, he turned the water to blood. There were frogs. There were gnats. There were flies. There was dead livestock. There were boils. All the Egyptians had boils all over them. What a bummer. There was hail. There were locusts. And there was a darkness that could be felt. And the last thing was the Passover. In the Passover, on that night of deliverance, God was going to take the firstborn of Egypt, of every household, of every home. But he gave some instructions to the nation of Israel. Here's how you will be passed over on that night. And it's God who passed them over. It's not some angel of death. Don't separate that from God for it's God that gives life and it's God that takes it away. And it's God that passed over that night and God gave the nation of Israel some specific instructions. Here's how you'll be passed over. And here's how you won't be visited by this last plague. And here's those instructions in Exodus chapter 12. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. So you got four days to hear its bleat. you got four days for little Johnny to pet it. Enjoy the life of the animal before you actually take the life of the animal. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now listen to the details as if you're a father and you've watched... The water of the Nile turned to blood. Whoa. Imagine being a father and you watch frogs that are so thick they're jumping into Egyptians' beds. Imagine that you've watched gnats invade every home, invade every nostril, invade every space. Imagine that you've watched dead livestock covering, littering the countryside. That you've watched the Egyptians walk around with their boils. Imagine that you've seen all that firsthand, that you've seen hail crushing crops, crushing critters. Imagine that you've seen locusts and that you've seen a darkness that could be felt and yet it wasn't dark where you lived. Imagine that you've seen all that and then God says, get ready for this last plague. And he gives you the details. Go get you an unblemished lamb and hang out with it for four days. You think you'd be following orders? You think you'd be taking notes? I bet I would. I'd have my sticky pad out. Now, what did he say? I'd be turning to my brother. What did he say? I want to make sure I get this right. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts after they've slaughtered this lamb and the lintel that's above the doorposts of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread. You want to make sure you get unleavened bread? You think it's important? You think you'd be listening? With bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Man, I'm going to be following orders. I'm going to roast that bad boy. I'm going to roast its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in hand, ready to move out. You better be ready to travel light, Bothers. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I, that's God, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and, all, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and where I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of of Egypt. It was up to daddies. It was up to fathers to secure the unblemished lamb, that passover lamb. It was up to daddies to ready the environment for obedience, to make sure that they got the herbs on hand. Baby, you need to make a trip to the trip to the grocery store. We've got to make sure all we got is herbs. We're not going to boil that bad boy. We are going to herb roasted cuz that's what God said. Honey, pay attention to me because I'm paying attention to God. Make sure you don't put leaven in that bread. We're going to follow orders. I've got to make sure I've got a hyssop branch handy because I'm going to need the hyssop to slather up the doorposts. I'm going to make sure there's not any furniture in front of the doorposts, that I've got access to the doorposts and the lentils where I can slather those bad boys. And then I'm going to make sure my knife is sharp because if it's not sharp, I won't be able to slaughter that lamb at twilight. Daddies are thinking these things. And the daddies are sacrificing the animal at twilight. And daddies are slathering the doorposts. And then the family at the leadership of the daddy has eaten the lamb and the bread hastily with loins girded, staff in hand, ready to move out. And at daddy's leadership, they're packing light for mobility. And at daddy's leadership, they are readying for midnight of deliverance. The reason this story is our story, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that Christ is our Passover lamb, people of God. That's why that's our story. That's why fathers can climb into that story and go, ooh, that's us. That's our responsibility. Shepherds are charged with readying the family. And I ask you, daddies, are your knives sharp? Are you packing light? Are you seeing how much you can accumulate in this short little pilgrimage that we have here on earth? Is that what you're about, Daddy? Are your loins girded? Are you ready to move out? Are you slathering the doorposts of the life of your family with the sweet, perfect blood of the Lamb? That's your charge, dads and functional shepherds. Because the midnight of deliverance is coming. I ask you, daddies, think about that. Is your family looking at you going, paint, Daddy, please. And you got your hands in your pockets. Or are you bearing the of branch? Midnight is coming. and Christ is going to return or we're going to die first. Our midnight is imminent. And it's the responsibility of the Daddy to ready the family. That was our first little snapshot. Our first little photo at the beginning of the year where I want to tell you right now, I know already of marriages and homes and families that have been and are being transformed just by that recognition of the urgency of readying for midnight of deliverance. That was our first visit this year. And along the way, we moved back to John, climbed into John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we met this woman named Mary This woman named Mary spends a whole year's wage on this stuff called nard. I know it's a funny name. Every time I say it, Scott giggles. Nard. But this stuff, this was a perfume. It was anointment. And it was probably a little bitty vial, alabaster vial. A year's wage spent in about 15 minutes. Insert your year's wage in that. And what we recognize is that Mary, was what she was doing there is called nardic worship. Nardic sacrifice, which is by nature, that's what sacrifice is. It's expensive, and you can't afford it. That's what offerings should be. What we saw in Mary is we saw this incredible Nardic worship. But we watched her movements. We watched her movements in John chapter 12 where she let her hair down. When a woman let her hair down in that context, it would only be for her husband. I'm going to tell you something. In this little context, in this home, things got racy, possibly, at least in the eyes of the spectators. It wasn't racy in Mary's heart. It wasn't racy in Christ's heart. It was just sweet, perfect worship. She let her hair down. She touched his feet. She administered denard to his head. What we found in studying this, engaging this, where God led us as a people, is we went to Song of Solomon. The only other reference of Nard is in Song of Solomon, where it's a story of a bride adoring her husband, and a husband adoring her bride-to-be, his bride-to-be. We found a bride there that was enjoying the Nardic aroma of her husband. And it was here, this snapshot showed us, God showed us in this one, as we realize not in a sexual sense, but in a passion sense, that God is married to his people and we are betrothed to Christ. Here's where things changed at home for me. I think the Passover series had an impact on me and my family and the urgency of readying my family for midnight. But I think Mary's Nardic worship impacted me most as I considered that Marriage is not just a remedy for loneliness. As I saw this movement between Mary and Christ, they weren't married, but there were some of the movements there that looked almost marriage-like. And I realized that as God is married to His people, as Christ is betrothed to the bride, my view of my wife and my home changed. It was here I realized that marriage is not a remedy for loneliness. But if God is married to his people, and Christ is betrothed to the bride. What's happening in my home at 10510 Woodland is a little micro gospel on a little micro earth called home. That's where things changed for me. Here's where I realized, and I think men in this body realize, here's why men love their wives as Christ loved the church, because Christ loved and loves the church, his bride, so much that he died for her. If marriage is just a remedy for loneliness, then what's the big deal? But when marriage becomes a little micro gospel on a micro earth where some little micro kids see the gospel lived out, man, then things get different all of a sudden. Then things get urgent between man and woman where man wants to love his wife as Christ loved the church because that is the gospel. Here's where we realize why, why wives submit to their husbands. Not just so the preacher can have things a little bit easier at home. It was not some man-made thing so Christian men can kind of have an easier life. The reason the wives submit to the husbands at home is because the church submits to Christ. Because the gospel is lived out at home on that little micro earth. In John 12, we realize that marriage and family aren't remedies to loneliness But they're walking billboards of the gospel. So things changed at home. Next place that I would call a snapshot that I would look back on is the Genesis series. Not all of you are in on that. It's not something that takes place on Sunday mornings, but on Wednesday nights, we engage it as a people, and it's a much smaller group. But we've been in Genesis for the last couple of months and most recently, we were considering and just finishing up this section on Noah where we're going back and studying this story that many of you have read so many times. You skip over, oh, I got that, which is just a travesty. We've been gnawing on it and going back and digging on it. And what we found, let me, let me introduce you to an image before I share this with you. How many times have you seen people walking into church, a couple, where mama has got the doily covered Bible with handles on it? You know what I'm talking about? She's got markers sticking out the end of it, blue and orange and yellow, She's got sticky notes sticking out every edge of it. She's got to carry it with both hands because she's got so much in it and because she treasures it so much. And then Daddy's falling behind her with his pockets in his hands. <laughs> oh, what time is this going to be over with? I haven't seen it much here at Crosspoint in the last couple of years, but I've seen it. I grew up seeing it. Imagine that paradigm, and now consider this, that I bet that Mrs. Noah had a doily-covered Bible with handles. <laughs> I bet she did, complete with the markers and the sticky notes. But I bet that Noah didn't have his spiritual hands in his spiritual pockets while Mrs. Noah tried to build the ark with a glue gun and scotch tape. What seems to have happened from the Word, what's so obvious it happened from the Word, is that Noah built the ark with his sons like men. (laughs) They prepared their family for deliverance. It was their charge to ready their families for a rainy day. It was their responsibility. It was their charge to pour. Listen to this, men that want to accumulate as much as you possibly can here in this short pilgrimage on earth. It was their responsibility and their charge to pour out thousands of dollars into a contraption that nobody had ever even seen or ever even needed called a boat. What is that big old thing? It was their charge to pour months and years, about a hundred of them, to be exact, into the hard work of building this football field and a half-long ark. It was their charge to do these things so that they would be ready when God followed through on what He promised. And here's the reality for the people of God. Men, fellow Noahs, here's the reality for the people of God. God has promised that His Christ, His Son, is coming back. And guess what? It's going to rain again. But it's not going to be H2O. What's going to rain is judgment. What's going to rain is justice. And what is hopefully going to rain for the people of God is deliverance. It's coming. And it's up to the Noahs and to the heads of households knowing that it's going to rain because God promised that it's going to rain, that Christ is coming back. That we are leading our families to get on the ark. The beauty for us is the ark's already been built. And that ark was completed and finished in the sweet finished work of that cross. So it's our responsibility to get our families on our ark, which is the cross. Get on that cross, family. Because the rain's coming. That's the responsibility of the shepherds. And then this last couple of weeks, turn to Luke chapter 1. This last couple of weeks, I think it's no small coincidence. <laughs> I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in the sovereign God. I think it's God's sweet sovereignty that we were in Luke chapter 1 considering Zachariah's story in reading for Christmas. Here embedded within that story, Gabriel shared with Zachariah in the temple that day. What his son was going to do, John the Baptist. And here's what he said to him in Luke chapter 1, verse 16. Here's what John the bee is going to do. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Do you hear that? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the wisdom of the just. And how? To make ready for what? To make ready For the Lord a people prepared. (laughs) We started out the year with the Passover series. We had Noah all up in there. We even had Ezra and Nehemiah where Ezra preaches. He just reads the word. The people, first of all, they demand, Read to us from the book. So Ezra reads the book. And they repent. And they worship. And they celebrate. And they weep. And that's on day one. And then on day two, the daddies come back. Ready to hear the word preached. And they hear the whole thing of feast of booths, where they're supposed to be building booths and remembering their time in the wilderness. So they say, hey man, let's go build some booths. Let's do what the Bible said. All those things happened this year. And then we ended the year with this sweet image of what John the Baptist charge was: to make ready a people prepared. That's what I hope people would characterize us as. That's what I hope God will characterize us as. That's what I want to be known as. Before God, when he judges us, he says, Crosspoint is a people prepared. And what's characteristic of a people prepared is that their fathers have their hearts turned toward their children's Why? Wives are included in that. That's how I titled this series that we're in January or February. I don't know how long it'll be. Is the DIB series. The reason I'm calling it is that because our, our families have dibs, guys. Shepherds, functional shepherds. Our families have dibs. Not L3, not A&M Commerce, not IBM, not Eyewitness, not 3M. Those are all the acronym sort of <laughs> businesses I could think of. There might be some more in here that I missed out on and I'm bumming. But you get the picture. Who gets dibs? Our families gets di- get dibs. Work is important, and providing for your family is important, but a people prepared will be made up of families with men, our functional shepherds, with big, soft hearts for their wives and their children. A people prepared. As I consider where God has taken us this last year in 2007, you know, I shared last week that I see 2008 being the year of the shepherd. When I look back at 2007, I think, huh, It's kind of like we already had the year of the shepherd and just didn't know it. The difference this year is that we're going to be even more intentional about equipping the family to bring glory to God. I'll show you a few snapshots of how important the family is to God. We're going to look at ten passages, and then we're going to pray. I want you to engage these passages. I mean, there's riches here. And as you engage these passages, think about that row of people that's sitting next to you called family. Or think about those members of your family that are not here because they're in the nursery. Or they're working, or they're at the treehouse having children's worship. Or maybe they're not here, and you can be burdened about them. But think about family as you hear these passages. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I'm going to turn very quickly... And you can turn with me if you're quick. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I have a very underdeveloped view of covenant, but I aim by the work of grace to have a better view on that, to understand that. And I know for most folks, when I say the word covenant, you're like, oh, oh, yeah, whatever. That's the way I was most of my life. But now I'm realizing that we live in the covenants. Covenant is how... it. A God interacts with His people. And here's the covenant that God enters into with Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Go from your own country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, Abram. I'm going to rename you later, Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, Abe, listen. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Insert your name in there. Insert your family name. In you, Abe, this guy that lived, I don't know, 2,000 years ago probably? Maybe more than that. That in Abe, the McGraws will be blessed? Sure enough, that's what it says here. Families of the earth shall be blessed. Turn to Genesis chapter 28. Jacob has a dream. You may be familiar with the dream, Jacob's Ladder. He has this dream and God speaks to him in verse 13. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie while you snooze, while you are engaging this dream, while you're hearing these words from me, this land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and to Greenville. This is our story, guys. This is not some old tired, dusty covenant. Ah, yawn. This is our story. This is our heritage. He says, I'm going to give you this. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Insert your family name. There it is again. Family is embedded in the middle of the covenant covenant promises. Turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22 is really a psalm that kind of explains, well, it's, it's a, in many ways a prophetic passage about the suffering of Christ in the cross. Some of this you'll recognize as I just take little snippets from the psalm, but I want you to hear what's embedded right in the middle of this story. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? It's written about a thousand years before Christ hung from the cross. "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Verse six, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, essentially, "He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue Him, for He delights in Him." Does that sound familiar? It's the story of the cross. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. Verse 16, dogs encompass me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Remarkable? Written a thousand years before our Christ hung from the cross. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. How could the Jew not see Christ as Savior and Lord? They had this for a thousand years. Listen to where verse 24, the thing changes direction says, for he has not despised. God is going to deliver. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Family is smack dab in the middle of the passion. Family is in the middle of the suffering of Christ. Family is right, embedded in the middle of the covenant promises of God. It's in the middle of the suffering of Christ. Turn to Psalm 107. I'm not going to read this whole psalm. This ought to be a psalm that you're familiar with, because shepherds, we engage this as families. Some of you wrote a Psalm 107. I encourage each of you to write it. If some of you are still working on your Psalm 107, stay after it. Knock that bad boy out. Let's enjoy it corporately. Let's enjoy it publicly. Psalm 107 is a psalm about deliverance. Listen to the themes. Some wandered in desert desert wastes, but he delivered them from their distress. He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. That's Egypt. He delivered them from their distress. They loathed any kind of food. That's the picture of them complaining about manna and quail wandering in the desert. And he delivered them from their distress. He delivered them from their destruction. He delivered them from their distress. Verse 40, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes, But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes what makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord is directed at the deliverance of the families. He delivers families and he makes them like little flocks. Going back to the Noah story, they were saved by families. Noah and his three sons and their families, they even disembarked from the ark by families. The Bible says that even the critters disembarked by families. Tell me God doesn't have a view of the family. It's all over our Bibles. Family is right in the middle of the deliverance of God's people. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, page 765 of your Pew Bible. This is about 500 years after David, about 500 years before Christ. It's kind of centered around the Babylonian exile period. Amos was a preacher to Israel. And here's what he says in chapter 3. He says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family, there it is again, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's a passage about election right there. That's a passage about God's sovereign choice of an undeserving people. If you get to know the nation of Israel, you go, oh, it's not because you're mighty in number. It's not because you're Mr. Faithful that God chose you. He chose you, why? Because He can. Because He's a creator. He can do what He wants. And right here, embedded in the middle of the picture of God's sovereign election, is a picture of the family. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, you might be thinking, I'm about to move to the New Testament, but you might be thinking, "Ah, it's just kind of an Old Testament picture. You know, things got more individual in the New Testament, didn't they? You know, things were just kind of corporate and family in the Old Testament. But I want you to realize that even the Great Commission, likely, from the Jew as he heard make disciples, as he heard teach, preach, baptize, and make disciples of all nations and all peoples, that he likely would have heard families Because that's the way God had interacted with His people over the ages. And that's the way it unfolds in the New Testament. We're going to look at four examples. And then we're going to pray. I want you to stay with me. John chapter 4. You've got to see this. I want you to see a higher view of the crew of people that you're sitting next to. And I want you to swallow hard as you consider our responsibility to ready our families for midnight. Just so you see that this is not a family thing in the Old Testament that changes in the New where things go more individual. God continues to interact with people that way. The story of Christ, this nobleman, this official comes to Christ and he's asking God, asking Christ to heal his son. He heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And see, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him. They're running to him. They said, Your son is recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him, and the father knew that that was the very hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and listen to what happens. And he himself, this nobleman, this official, believed and all his household. God interacts, continues to interact, and deliver by family. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Timothy and Paul and Silas are traveling around, and they're preaching the Word, and they go to a place called Philippi in verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she said, hey, y'all come to my house and have dinner. You hear that? After Lydia was baptized, her whole household followed suit. The reason this should be is such a sweet encouragement to you. I told you that a part of broken families to be encouraged, to hang in there because this will be good medicine. This Lydia is likely a single mom. This Lydia is mentioned later in verse 40. It says of Lydia, listen to this in verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visit Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Where's the husband? It's unlike Luke to not mention a husband. This is likely a single mom. So be encouraged, functional shepherds. That God's grace is sufficient. You may not have a man in the house shepherding your family. But Lydia ought to be an encouragement to you. that God too can work with whole households through a committed, listening, functional shepherd. Also in the same chapter, look at verse 31. Paul and Silas are in prison and they're preaching. And in verse 30, says, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Listen to what happens to the jailer. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. There it is again. One more, chapter 18, verse 8. Here's a Jew named Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Seems that God still interacts, continues to interact with the family. And over the ages, God created family. Over the ages, God has interacted with family. God is delivering family. He's redeeming family. And our Western individual mindsets have reduced family to where I'm not even sure if it exists anymore. It's just a collection of individuals that are existing together, cohabitating. God created family. He ordained it alongside the church and really through and connected to the church to hear His Word and to be His people. The way we're going to end our, at least our preaching portion this morning is in prayer. We have 73 families in this body. As members. 73 families. That's the way I view you. You should know that. The elders view... Don't don't, don't get your gear together. I hear y'all shuffling. We're going to worship in song here in a minute. In response to what we're engaging this morning. So you don't need to get your gear together. We're going to pray. So don't be thinking about lunch. Or whatever's in store the rest of the day. We're about to enter the throne room and engage the living God. And I'm about to represent this people in lifting you up by name, 73 shepherds. So let's pray. Lord, this morning, in these next few minutes, I want to lift up specifically the shepherds of this body that are members. Lord, we lift up Joey Aiken and his family, Abiola Ajiboye, Christy Epstein and Catherine, Mark Atkinson and his family, Chad Avance and his family, James Barnes and his family, Morris Bean and his family. We lift up Karen Bench, Trey Brookshire and his family. We lift up Jim Bryson and his family, Brad Cardwell and his family, Mike Cardwell and his family. We lift up Gary Carroll and his family. We lift up Trey Klein. We lift up Viviana. Lord, I bring before you this morning Nathan Cochran and his family, Jonathan Collier and his family, Jeff Collins and his family, Patrick Fields, Scott Feasel and his family, Gail Fry, Tim Goff and his family, Todd Hackney and his family, Jay Hall, we lift up, Lord, Aaron Hamilton, we lift up Christian and Daniel Haas, we lift up Julie Herbert, we lift up John Hicks and his family. I lift up David Holmes. lift up Cody Holt and his family. We lift up Danae Holt. Jake Huck and his family. Brian Hudgens and his family. Casey Kent. We lift up Jack Kimball and his family. Brent Kimbler and his family. Tracy Lindsey and his family. Drew Livingood and his family. Steve Mayo and his family. Lord, we lift up the McGraws. We lift up Mark McKinney and his family, Dan Metz and his family, Bart Millard and his family, Mike Miller and his family, Philip Miller and his family, Jason Monroe and his family, Wes Myler and every member of his family. We lift up Lauren Naira and little Ava and Emma. We lift up Jeff Ott and his family, Lowell Perry and his family, Clay Petzold and his family, Corey Pfeiffer and his family, Eric Powell and his family, and his family. Steve Roberts, and his family. Ken Rodden, and his family. Bill Ruth, and his family. Tim Safer, and his family. Mike Salazar, and his family. Mike Schweitzer and his family. Randy Scott, and his family. Lord, we lift up Chad spear. We beg for restoration and repentance. We pray for his family. We pray for his future shepherding of the Spear family. Pray for Jason Sturgeon and his family. For Scott Sutton and his family. For Bob Thorman and his family. We pray for Amy Tomlinson and Kyle and Becca. Pray for Barbara Underwood. We pray for David Erlocker and his family. We pray for Billy Vaughn. We pray for Jeff Wade and his family. Key Walker and his family. Bob Waterman and his family. Jeremy Webb and his family. Pray for Jake Wetzel and his family. And Bob Woodworth and his family. We pray for Mike Wiley and young Michael. And Lord, for shepherds, we pray for these shepherds that we've named. We pray for soft hearts turned toward family. Lord, we pray for a growing affection and adoration and enjoyment of Christ and the cross and your gospel. Lord, for shepherds, we pray for urgency, for readiness, for midnight. For shepherds, we pray for teachability and humility for your glory and for your namesake. For shepherds, Lord, we pray for unwavering commitment to excellence in the things of God. Lord, for shepherds, I pray for a teeth-bearing, flint-faced tenacity in study and teaching and engagement of the Word. For shepherds, Lord, I pray for accountability to each other and to the leadership of the people of God. And Lord, for the Lydia's, pray for extra grace, sweet grace. And Lord, for visiting families that have been walking with us for a period of time that have not come into fellowship officially, Lord, I pray first of all for no common law relationship. Lord, I pray that you will raise church on the level with family where families will see the responsibility that we have to be members of one another and the accountability that's horizontal as well as vertical. Lord, I pray for, humbly pray, for these families that may be walking with us, that may be considering that, that you'll give them a clear picture of what it means to be true, have true commitment to the people of God and accountability to a people. And Lord, if it's not this people, this is not a membership drive prayer, this is a commitment prayer, quality commitment by your people prayer. And if it's not this people, Lord, I pray for a Christ-adoring people that every person that's in this room, that's hearing my voice, that's lifting up our praises and prayers to your throne room, that we will be committed in quality connections to a people that adores Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful year we've had. As we look back at our snapshots and our photo album, we are humbled by your sweet word and your sweet truth at just the right time. Lord, I pray that we will walk in that truth. Lord, as we ease into 2008, Lord, I pray for men and shepherds and Lydia's to just be burdened and urgent about being engaging, about engaging the things that matter. We love you so much, Lord. We worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.